the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the program. It's Friday, which means at least in this particular Friday, means that this is going to be my last live program for two weeks. Paul and I are going on vacation. We would appreciate, we would covet your prayers while we're there. Uh, I told you yesterday and earlier in the week that Pastor Ken will be taking over the microphone for me um, next week, and uh, his wife May will be with him on the date day edition of the program. So you can tune in and ask him really, really hard questions because he's really, really smart. But we'll be on vacation, and and um, we're ready for it. So today is the last day. would love to make it a day where there's lots of phone calls and lots of questions. Here is the way you can contact us. I didn't say who I am. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. Uh, we uh, This is a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering Bible questions. You can call us at area code 210-340-9585. That's 340-9585. You can also call us toll-free if you're out of the local area by calling 877-630-KSLR. Numerically, that's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com or via our Calvary Chapel mobile app, which is free. If you're driving in your car and want to call, the safest way is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the Call Now button, and you will be connected directly to our studio producer. You know, we're counting down for vacation. I told you we're leaving. Well, vacation for me is one more study tonight, Acts chapter 18, and then one more study on Sunday, uh, Luke chapter 4, where, where Jesus is being tempted in the wilderness by the devil. I don't like to think of Jesus being tempted by the devil, but we know that's what happened. And then we get to go on vacation. So whatever your question is today, we'd love to have it. Here is our first question that came in um, from Anonymous. Who or what is being referred to in Revelation 17:5 when we read, And on her forehead a name was written, Mystery Babylon the Great, the Mother of Harlots, and the Abominations of the Earth. Anonymous, um, Revelation 17. Um, the fact that a title was written on her forehead uh, was a symbol that John would understand. Um the world that he lived in, Roman prostitutes often wore headbands with their name engraved on them. Uh, in effect, they were pronouncing proudly uh, what she did for a living. Um, and while she might be dressed up and look beautiful to the world, um, what describes, is being described here is simply a prostitute. Uh, the use of the word mystery in uh, relation to Babylon indicates that there's a lot more in view here than just physical Babylon. Now remember, in the Great Tribulation, the the center of the world's power is going to shift to Babylon, modern-day Iraq, 
Um, so, so it's a physical place. There's a real Babylon. But the, the word of mystery says there's a lot more going on here. And in this particular instance, it speaks to the religion uh, or philosophy of the powers behind physical Babylon. They've got the power. They're in Babylon. But they're really the strings are being pulled by the devil. Um, in Ephesians chapter 5, Anonymous, you'll remember that Paul called the true church a mystery. Well, this mystery church is simply another counterfeit of the devil. Um, Babylon is in Scripture a symbol of confusion. It was where God confused the language uh, of those who rebelled against it, the Tower of Babel. Uh, and to a Jew, Babylon represented the completeness of total evil. In John's day, that city was Rome. Rome was the enemy of God and the enemy of God's people. And it was in Rome where Christians were put to death without any reason other than they were Christians. Now, the mystery here, and this is important to make sense of it, is that the spirit behind Babylon and Rome in John's day has always and will always be in control of this world. Until Jesus comes, that's the way it's going to be. That's the reason that Paul called Satan the God, the little g-god of this age in 2 Corinthians. For Jews, it was the city of Babylon in the end times. That's what it'll be. Uh, For the early church, it was Rome. Uh, When I taught this passage of Scripture, I said, today, that city is every city. doesn't matter whether you're in Wall Street or Hollywood, London, Paris. Their city's given over to evil. San Francisco, I rest my case. So Babylon is striving. So this is where false religion began. It was in Babylon where false religion um, was led by a man named Nimrod. He was a great-grandson of Noah through Ham's evil line. And he was a, descri- a man described as a mighty hunter before God. And he began the practice of idol worship on earth. His wife was a woman named Semiramis, and she led in the worship of false gods. She claimed to have experienced a miraculous virgin birth. I hope that sounds familiar too. Uh, The devil here tries his own version of the promised seed of woman in Genesis 3.15. Her son was named Tammuz, and he was supposed to have been gored to death by a wild bear and then raised to life. Naturally, then they claim that Tammuz was the savior of men and Simramus was the queen of heaven. So all of that to say that, that, that behind Mystery Babylon is the enemy who's always trying to counterfeit what God was saying. Babel was the place on earth. And if I've said some Catholics here, forgive me in advance. But Babel was the place where mother and son worship began. It's easy to see how mother and son worship has infiltrated the Catholic Church. Again, the devil has no new ideas. He's always counterfeited the truth. He just makes it just similar enough to deceive many. In our culture, the worship of Mary in Roman Catholicism is an example of this very form of false worship. Uh, in verse 18 of this chapter, it says that Babylon, the great city, is the mother of prostitutes, and it indicates that this is the spirit that is the source of all false religions. So that's what it's talking about. It's not talking about the, the, the literal kingdom of Babylon. It's talking about the false religious Babylon, which is something that's always been with us and always will be with us. So I hope that answers your question. Thank you, Anonymous. Here is another question, this time from Richard. In Exodus chapter 12, verses 40 and 41, we read that the children of Israel sojourned in Egypt for 430 years. How does Moses arrive at this figure? I thought the captivity in Egypt was 400 years. Uh, Richard, there's a couple things here to, to, to focus on. Um, We know from Galatians chapter 3, verse 17, that Paul comes up with exactly the same number, um, 430 years. And, and, And this is not when it just started, but this is when the very day, the rest of the verse says, the very day when they left... Um, uh, Egypt um, and and it was a day that the Lord wanted commemorated so yeah the captivity for 400 years it's spoken of specifically but it's also spoken of generally but what Moses is doing and again Paul later affirms in Galatians chapter 3 is that the promise was made to Abraham 
when God commanded him to go to Canaan to the giving of the law, which soon followed the departure from Egypt. So we've got 70 years in captivity, but at some point in that captivity, uh, of course, the law was given to Moses and, you know, he broke the tablets and had to go up and do it all over again. So um, we've got the number twice. It doesn't precisely coincide with the 400 years, but I think the idea there is is close. Uh, Stephen, in his Holy Spirit-inspired witness of the the history of Israel, uh, uses 400 years as well. Um, but this is simply um, giving us additional information about more time. So uh, you're not wrong if you say that the captivity was 400 years. Um, You're also not wrong if you say that they were leaving Egypt after 430 years. Those things are both true. Hope that makes sense to you. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here's a question from Dot. Dot, I got to tell you the truth. I laughed when I saw this question the first time. Does God expect wives to submit to their husbands, even if the husband is not saved and cares nothing for God? Um, Dot, submission isn't doing what you're told. Submission is being under authority, and we're all under authority. So yes, God does expect wives to submit to the headship of their husbands. And you don't do it because you can trust your husband. You do it because you can trust Jesus. Now, something that's always important to point out is that if your husband asks you to do something ungodly, if your husband asks you to do something contrary to what the Word teaches us, well, then of course you don't just do it because, well, I have to submit. Submission is submitting to your husbands, Ephesians 5, as unto the Lord. If your husband says, I don't want you to go to church, you can't do that because God says to go to church. If your husband wants you to look at pornography with him, no, you can't do that because you know that's evil. If your husband wants you to lie for him, you can't do that. So submitting is as unto the Lord. Again, Dot, it doesn't make your husband the boss. It doesn't mean he's better than you, smarter than you, or more spiritual than you. And in your case, when you say he's not saved and cares nothing for God, here's the passage of Scripture for you, Dot. It's 1 Peter chapter 3, the first five verses. You see, here's what we want to have happen. We want your husband to get saved. We want him to know Jesus. And the only way he's going to know Jesus is if he sees Jesus in you. So love him. Make sure the house is clean. Make sure that you look your best. Make sure that your responses to him are always genuinely and lovingly kind. And if he asks you to do something that doesn't violate the word of God, tell him yes. If he asks you to do something that does violate the word of God, tell him no and tell him why. And don't do it in an argument. Don't do it in a loud voice. Just tell him, I love Jesus even more than I love you. Now, dot. I know how difficult that sounds, but here's the reason I laughed. First Peter chapter 3 saved my life because that's what the Lord gave Paula when she was praying for me for those 13 years after she got saved and I was still Ron the jerk. And the one thing that I've said many times on this program in response to questions like this, the one thing that I couldn't reconcile is Paula's joy. I knew I was making her life miserable. I knew I was causing her so much pain. And yet there was always a joy. Even in the middle of sadness, even when she was crying, even when she was sort of at the end of her nerves, there was still this joy, this peace that she had in Christ. And God's grace was so abundant in her life then. And you know what happened, Dot? I got jealous. I got jealous that Paula loved somebody more than me. And somebody was a man named Jesus, and I was powerless to stop it. And eventually, the day I did give my life to Jesus, I called out for Paula's Jesus because I didn't know anything else about him. I knew he was real. I knew he was powerful, more powerful than I was. 
And in that day of desperation for me, I gave my heart to Jesus because I saw Jesus in her life and I saw how real he was. So that's why God asks you, married to an unbelieving husband, to submit to him. It's easy to pick, it's easy to nag, it's easy to argue. But do you love Jesus enough? Will you trust Jesus enough to know that even your husband makes horrible decisions, God will protect you? I promise you it works. I pray it won't take 13 years for you as it did for me. But I promise you it works. I hope that helps, Scott. Thank you very, very much. Here's a question from Daniel. He says, is it okay to baptize infants? By okay, I mean, God's not going to strike you dead or anything, Daniel. But but it's not effective. It's There's no value in it. Because infants have no say-so, no choice in the matter. So, um, again, it's not like a moral sin or anything. But there's just no value in it. And I think what we ought to do, what we do here at Calvary Chapels, we dedicate babies and we wait for baptism when it can be a choice of somebody's own free will. Now, I know there are religious traditions, especially Catholicism, but not just Catholicism. Lutherans do it. Um, uh, other denominations do it. Um, but, but they do it with no biblical support or relevance at all. The baptism is a symbol of the washing away of sins. How can a baby make that choice? I can't tell you, Daniel, how many people I've baptized who were baptized as infants in another church tradition. And even though often the moms will make them feel like, no, you're going to go to hell if you get baptized again. The Bible is our standard for living, our standard for practice. And it's really important that we understand that we really and truly understand that baptism is a choice and it represents the death of the old person and the, 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 the resurrected life of the newness that Jesus offers. And Daniel, that can only be received by faith when we make a choice. So don't baptize babies. Dedicate them to the Lord. And by the way, when we're dedicating babies, we're really dedicating not only the family, but the the whole church family. We're dedicating relatives who are believers. We're we're asking for commitment to help raise this child, to know Jesus, to love the Lord, and to know that he or she is loved by God. And that takes a family. Paul, I'm so needy. Paula has a saying. She goes, it takes a village, she'll say, because I need people to drive. I need people to do all kinds of things. And she'll say, it takes a village, it takes a village, you know, it takes a village to raise the children. But it's a village of believers. So don't baptize, dedicate your babies. 340-9585, here's another anonymous question, a tough one. Um, what would you say to someone like me who never really experiences the joy or emotional highs that other Christians claim to have? I often get stuck in a very bad place and don't hear anything from God when I cry for help. Anonymous, a couple of things here, and I want you to hear my heart because some of what I'm going to say can be misunderstood. I would say to someone who doesn't experience the joy or emotional highs that other Christians claim to have, I would say you're too far from Jesus. I'd say that your walk is too much about you and not enough about him told my church this many, many times, Anonymous, that whenever I spend time with me, I'm pretty miserable. When I leave me and spend time with Jesus, well, then everything changes. And the truth is, far too many of us as believers, we're so close to our circumstances, we're so close to the things that we think we want and don't have, we're close to our own problems, real or imagined, that we can't see Jesus. And the answer to it all is to see Jesus. That's why we're told to focus our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. That's why we're told to look and set our hearts and minds on things above. Sometimes we we have so many difficult things going on in our life at one time, 
we get so close to them, whether it's fear or worry or a bunch of other things, we get so close to them that we're not able to see the Lord. So it's very important that you understand the answer is to be with him, to be close to him, practice being in his presence. Talk to him all day, every day. In his presence, the Bible promises fullness of joy. Anywhere else, that joy goes. Now, I'm not an emotional person in the sense that, um, you know, I'm not really into goosebumps and all those kind of things. It's great when you have those experiences. But, but again, those are sometimes Christians who are just going based on feelings instead of on fact. Now, here's the other part, and here's what I don't want you to misunderstand. We have to have faith to believe that he's got us in these difficult times. When you get stuck in a bad place, he has you. And he asks you to have enough faith to really and truly believe that. And when I say believe it, I don't just mean intellectual assent to the fact, but really understand. Anonymous, Romans chapter 8, is a wonderful place to go because in just that one chapter, there's so many great promises made to us. Now, obviously, this requires you being a man or woman of the Word. You're always going to be in a bad place if you're not in the Word. Therefore, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No doubt when you're in a bad place, you're feeling condemned. The Bible says in Romans 8.29 that God loved us before the beginning of time. And even when we were living lives that would be sort of like we're trying to get him to change his mind. He wouldn't do that. We're told in verse 31, if God is for us, who can be against us? A few verses later, that we're more than conquerors. That literal Greek word is super conquerors. We're like superheroes. But we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. And we find ourselves stuck in a bad place. The reason that we're stuck in a bad place is because we're not where he is. I'm not doubting salvation, nothing like that. But the only place to be is with him where he is. And that's the only place, Anonymous, the only place where there's peace that passes understanding, where there's the security that God wants you to have as a believer, a place where you can be content with what you have rather than focused on what you don't have. And Jesus is always going to be right there waiting for you to turn to him. So when you're in pain, a lot of it, I want you to know that his heart hurts and he's right there with you. So stop hanging out with your pain. Stop hanging out with circumstances. Stop trying to depend on feelings and instead simply say, Jesus, thank you for being here. And talk to him. It'll change your life, Anonymous. I promise it will change your life. When you say you don't hear anything from God when you cry for help, it's because you can't hear him because you're too far away. Every prayer gets answered often. In fact, I think most of the time the answer to those prayers is no or not yet or wait. And we've got to be able to say like Jesus, nevertheless, thy will, not my will be done. You know, Anonymous, as Paul and I are getting ready to go on vacation, I'm taking time because I think this is important. Of late, I go out every day, Lord, I need to hear your voice today. Jesus, I need to hear from you. I, things have been so difficult, so difficult. And I say, Lord, I need to hear your voice today. You know, sometimes he just says, no, you don't. Just keep walking with me. But Lord, I need to hear something. No, you don't. Well, then my choice is whether or not I'm going to trust that. I want to trust it. The only way I can is to, to really trust him. So I always, always, always get an answer. It's just not always the one I want. First thing that Paul and I got, and I'm taking this a little bit longer because we're inside two minutes now for this half of the break. 
the first thing Paul and I are going to do, we, we talk about this, we get a plan, is we're going to go to the beach and we're going to walk, we're going to chill, we're going to sleep in if we can. Problem with getting to be my age, you can't really sleep in much anymore, but we're going to sleep in if we can. We're going to exercise. Now we're just going to walk and talk to each other and talk with Jesus and just have no agenda, no schedule. And then after a couple of days of rest, then we're going to really sit down together and seek the Lord. Sit on our bench every day, take a walk every day. Lord, what about me? What about today? What about Calvary Chapel? What about the church? What about the radio programs, Lord? These things are all gifts from you. What do you want me to do? And you know, I don't know right now what answers we're going to get. But here's what I know for sure. That he's going to meet with us. Two weeks from now, when we come back, we'll be refreshed and ready for the work. Whatever it is that he set before us, we're ready to do it. Anonymous, if you spend your time that close to Jesus, I promise you, you'll experience the joy. I promise. Well, I can barely hear the music, but I guess you can hear it. You're listening to The Word to Stand Up for Life. We've got 30 minutes left in this week. 340-9585. We'd love your calls. We'll be back in two minutes. To the word to stand on for life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Wow, I'm really in the home stretch now. 30 minutes left. 340-9585. Let's go to San Antonio, Texas and talk with Fred on line one. Fred, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hi there. It's a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you. Uh, I wanted to ask you a question I've been kind of struggling to understand for a while. Uh, and it's, it's about the coming of Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's in Mark 9. There's a mention of him uh, speaking with his disciples in Mark chapter 9 and again in Mark chapter 13. And it's again mentioned, I believe, in Mark, I mean, in uh, Matthew uh, 24, 25. Uh, and it's talking about how when Jesus uh, is going to come back, and the, it talks about the destruction of, of uh, Jerusalem, the temple, and also the end times. And he says to his disciples that uh, this generation will not pass un, until you see all these things happen. Well, obviously, Jesus Christ has not come back yet. So I, was, I'm, I think I'm probably missing something. I'm just wondering if you can maybe clarify it for me. Yeah, I can. That that um, uh, passage of Scripture bothers a lot of people, and it's because of our misunderstanding, Fred, of, of the word generation. You know, we start to think, and by the way, a lot of false dates for Jesus' return have been set because of this. You know, a generation is 40 years, or a generation is 100 years, and, and, and so from this time, especially when Israel came back into the land in 1948, they thought, well, then 100 years from that, or, or, or uh, uh, 40 years from that, and, and of course they missed because that's not what he meant. When he says that this generation will not die, pass, until these things have come to pass. He's talking about the generation that is alive when those signs and wonders come. Now, here's what you really need to understand about the Olivet Discourse and the passages that you described, Luke chapter 21, Matthew 24 and 25, and Mark chapter 13, uh, is all and only about Israel during the Great Tribulation. So it doesn't apply to you and to me as Christians in this 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 time of grace. God is dealing now with us, uh, with the world in grace. Uh, when the church is raptured out of here, Fred, then he's going to once again turn and deal with the world in judgment and the great tribulation, the time called the time of Jacob's trouble or Israel's distress, the worst time ever um, in the history of the world. And it's a time that's bad because of judgment. And so when he starts to describe the signs, um, the prophet Joel talks about those signs in the second chapter of his little prophecy. 
uh, when you see these things happen, look up, he's saying, your redemption is near. Um, the generation that's alive when those signs appear will be the last generation on earth. So it's not a generation of 40 years or 100 years. Uh, it has nothing to do with those of us who are here as believers now. Uh, during the time described in the Olivet Discourse, we're going to be in heaven with Jesus for that seven-year period of time. So that's all he's talking about. This generation, he's not talking about Peter. Well, Peter, we know, died. He's not talking about John or the others because they too have died and, and, and now are with Jesus. So the generation alive when, he's, when those signs appear, is the last generation that's going to be on this earth before Jesus returns in victory, in glory. Does that help? Okay, so when he says this generation, he's actually talking about the last generation. This generation that sees the signs. Okay. So those, those, those people alive, when those signs appear will be the last generation. So that's the generation he's referring to. He's not talking about Peter or John or any of the other disciples. Um, he's talking about the generation that is alive when those signs appear in the Great Tribulation. Okay. okay. I see. Okay. All right. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. My pleasure, Fred. Thank you very, very much. That is a question that has stumbled so many people. And as I said to Fred earlier, has been uh, um, has resulted in even false dates being named um, for the return of, of of Israel. You know, when Jerusalem was captured by Israel in the 1967 war, um, that started the prophetic time clock for so many people. Well, now it's only a generation, so they gave anything from 50 years from 1967 to. A uh, hundred years, and, and Jesus would come back. Well, that's not at all what he meant. We just have to read the generation that sees those signs. Appreciate the question, Fred. Here is an important one. Uh, this is anonymous. Um, Pastor Ron, I truly believe the man I'm married to is what some would call a narcissist. He says and does mean and hurtful things on a continuous basis. He asks me to unharden my heart, but when I do, he hurts me again. I pray to Jesus for emotional strength, and I pray for my husband as well. I'm at such a loss. I have minimal friends and hardly any contact with family because of my husband. We've been to Christian marriage counseling after I filed for divorce, but things have gone back to how they were before, minus the physical abuse. That's in parentheses. Plus, he tends to play the victim really well in those counseling settings. My husband recently told me that he would be considered a red flag in a relationship due to the abuse he experienced at the hands of his father. Also, my husband claims to be a Christian and reads a lot, but his views and stance on the Bible are askew, good, good word, and don't feel right. And he says he's more doctrinal than emotional. In my opinion, he tends to use scripture for his own gain and as a way to control and manipulate. Anyway, I ask for prayers, and I will keep praying to Jesus. God bless you. Anonymous, I wanted to read the whole thing because um, there, there's so much here uh, that, that is, is, to me, a pastor red flag. The first thing I want to say, now it's too late to, to go backwards, but any woman married to a man who physically abuses her needs to leave and needs to leave now without even thinking, without hesitating, if you don't have any place to go, uh, there, God will provide a place. But he does not want you to be in a physically abusive relationship, period, period, period. Now, when a man is a jerk, and you're describing a jerk, if he's a narcissist, that's not for me to say, I don't know him. A manipulator, for sure, men are. But, but being a jerk is not grounds for divorce. Physical abuse is. And if you went to Christian marriage counseling after you had been physically abused and weren't told to leave, you got the worst information ever. And now that he seems to be going back to the way things are, it is likely that it's only a matter of time before the physical abuse returns as well. 
I would tell you now, the minute you feel in any kind of danger, I would tell you to leave and don't turn back. When you see the pattern of behavior repeating itself that led to physical abuse, reoccurring in your relationship, then you need to go. You need to go, and you can do so without guilt. Same would be true if your husband cheated on you. But in this case, the physical abuse that you've suffered is God saying, come to me. Let Jesus be your husband. Now, who knows? Maybe God will do a miracle. Maybe this husband will really get saved. But I can promise you that a guy who is manipulating you, a guy who who has a, a, a false view of Scripture and uses it to control and to manipulate isn't a believer. He can say Jesus all he wants, but he's not a believer. So protect yourself. If you came to our church and I knew you and I knew your husband, I would probably counsel at the minimum a physical separation for safety's sake. And then we're going to see what God is going to do. You're in a dangerous situation. And that's not where God wants you to be. Now, to the rest of you in the audience, when I say things like this, people say, but God hates divorce. Yeah, God hates physical abuse as well. God hates unrepentant hearts. God hates manipulative, controlling husbands. Safety is the priority here. So Anonymous, obviously I don't know who you are, but I will be praying for you. And I'll pray your husband gets saved. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. This is... I, I don't want to be chicken little here, but, but sometimes being a pastor is difficult. We deal with so much pain. So much of it caused by people who say they're Christians and have no idea who Jesus really is. And there's going to be a great accounting that's given for any man who misrepresents Jesus to the woman that God's given him. Sorry for you, and I'll be praying. Here is a question from Brandon. He says, do you believe churches ought to be in houses like they were in the book of Acts? Brandon, no, I don't believe that. That's the beginning of the church. Churches were very small. A lot of churches uh, were sort of underground. They had to be sort of underground because it was dangerous to leave uh, the Jewish religion or to, 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 to leave a pagan religion. Uh, families would disown you. Your life could be difficult. They would put you out. And so churches were in houses because they had to meet wherever they could. And churches, again, they started small, and that was the only place they had. That's not the way it's done anymore. Things have changed. I can promise you, Brandon, there's not a house big enough to hold the people that we have coming here to Calvary Chapel. What am I supposed to do? Tell them don't come? They want to hear the word taught. What am I going to do? Say, no, don't come because we should be in a house. So, no, it's okay to have a church in a house. And there's nothing wrong with having a small church in a house. But if your church is in a house, it's by definition going to be small. We who are pastors of the churches need to find out what does God want to do with this church? It does, after all, belong to him. So that was just out of necessity. Uh, when people started gathering together, they would find bigger shelterings. Remember that Paul would preach in a barn all night long. Eutychus fell asleep and fell to his death. Paul raised him from the dead, but but he fell and was killed. They had a bigger space for more people. And so it's romantic. It's something that we can look at with a lot of biblical idealism. But the truth is, wherever 
people gather together in Jesus' name, he's here. And if he wants to bring more people than will fit in the house, then we need a bigger building. And that's what we ought to do. So, Brandon, I hope that makes sense to you. Here is a question from Omar. This is one of my favorite questions I get from time to time. How important is it to understand and study church history? Uh, Omar, I, I think it's, I'm going to give you like on a scale of 1 to 10 of 5. That's how important it is. I think it's important, um, especially to study the book of Acts on Friday nights tonight. We're in the book of Acts in Acts chapter 18. Um, but, but you see, that's the pattern for church. So we study church history. But I want to go back that far for the foundation. You see, what happened shortly after the book of Acts ended is people started getting goofy. Heresies would come into the church, and there were people that would come in and try to control the church, devouring the flock of God instead of nurturing the flock of God. And, and the goofiest doctrines would spring up. John deals with, with Gnosticism. Paul also deals with Gnosticism. But there were all kinds of these heresies that would spring up, and, and, and they had to be dealt with. Probably 60-ish years after Jesus was crucified and risen from the dead and ascended to his Father in heaven, he wrote or dictated the letters to the seven churches in the book of Revelation, and there were already huge, huge problems. The early church fathers, if you read their writings, there's just some stuff that's unbelievable. People say, yeah, but the church fathers, they established... No, they they were just as wrong as we are. Now, there's many who contributed greatly. And that's why church history is that five on a scale of one to ten. We can be grateful for men like Polycarp, not because his theology was right, but because he died glorifying Jesus Christ, burned at the stake himself a disciple of the Apostle John. We understand the heroes in Fox's Book of Martyrs. Again, it wasn't because their doctrine was right. It was because their faith was strong. And we stand on their shoulders and we admire and appreciate what they've done. Our church culture today is built on their shoulders, built on their blood. The problem is when we go back to church history for doctrine and practice. Because they were just as wrong as many churches are today. Their understanding just as imperfect. Interpretations that you wouldn't even recognize. And that's why it's only a five. So... Read about the heroes of the church, the early church. But it isn't necessary to read their doctrine. Read your Bible and let God give you the doctrine. He'll, by his Holy Spirit, tell you what's right and what's wrong. You know, uh, Omar, one more thing I'd say about this. Um, I consider it a blessing now Um, I didn't always feel this way, but I consider it a blessing now not to have been raised in a Christian home, not to really, I I knew nothing about the Lord. I knew nothing about church or tradition. Uh, Denominations uh, seemed silly to me. I didn't didn't know anything. And so when I got saved as uh, very nearly 40 years old, uh, I had no baggage. And I had my Bible, I had libraries full of commentaries and the most curious mind you can imagine. And I wanted to know everything. But I had to dig for the answers myself. I didn't go to a pastor and say, well, what about this and what about this and let's debate this doctrine. I didn't do that. I did the hard work reading through the scriptures, using the scriptures to sort of judge whether or not the commentator said I was reading were right or wrong. I wanted to be sure that what I believed to be true about God really was, that it was consistent with his character, with his nature. 
And the only way I could do that was to was to do the work, to literally do the work. And as a result, without any baggage, I was free to discover what the Holy Spirit wanted to do in me and through me. And I can't tell you enough how important that was to me. Every day it was like I was mining for gold. Every day looking for something, just something new, something, God, what do you want to share with me today? It makes studying exciting. That's why I was so passionate about it, because I knew that at any moment Jesus was going to speak to me. And Omar, we've lost the simple joy of opening books and digging through, wrestling with doctrinal issues. Frankly, I don't care what Augustine thought or what Martin Luther thought. I don't care what John Calvin thought or wrote. What I care about is what God wrote in the Bible. And I want to understand Him. I think that's the best approach. Thank you, Omar. Judy says, if my prayers aren't being answered, what must I do to get answers? Judy, I said earlier to another question that God always answers prayers. But most of the time he says no or wait. James says we have not because we ask not. Well, you're asking. But then he says, or if you ask amiss. And what he means by that is if you ask for the wrong motive. So I don't know what prayers are being answered. I don't know what... what sort of prayers they are in the sense are you asking for stuff? Are you asking for um, money? Are you asking for a husband? Are you asking for um, people to be saved? Whatever you're asking for you can't help but to get your prayers answered if you're praying according to the will of God. So here's what we do. We need to dig into the will of God. Now, here's why we don't do that. To know the will of God you have to open your Bible and study it. And we don't want to do that. We want to pray. We're not wanting to do the work. Well, how can we possibly know the will of God? If the will of God says to flee from sexual immorality, but you're practicing sexual immorality, you, you haven't done the will of God. If the will of God is to keep no record of wrongs, and you're holding grudges against people, how can you expect to hear anything from God? If the will of God is is no coarse jesting, and yet your language is coarse and unkind, how can you hear the will of God? So if your prayers aren't being answered, the reason they're not being answered is because you're asking amiss. Or you're simply being told no. Judy, let me make this real easy. If you can't end every prayer with nevertheless thy will, not my will be done, then that shows you where your heart is regarding your prayers. There is no prayer that goes unanswered. I often don't like the answer to prayer that I get, but every prayer has an answer. Got time for maybe one more. This one is from Juan. He says, Pastor Ron, do we really have free will to ask Jesus into our hearts, or does God force us to believe in him? Now, Juan, I hate to beat the same horse, but see, if you have an open Bible, and you're learning about who Jesus is, you know, the Bible says that we're to grow in two things, in the knowledge of God and in the knowledge of his will for our lives. The only way we can do that is to be in the Word. So if I'm going to grow in the knowledge of God, I'm going to learn who He is. I'm going to learn what a God of love is all about. I'm going to learn that God offers choice and His hands are extended all day long to, to those of us who are stubborn and obstinate. If you'd really open your Bible, then you'd know that Jesus doesn't force anybody to do anything. He could. He's God. 
But God wants a relationship. He wants to be loved and wants to love us. How would it be loving us if he forced us to love him? If Jesus, who could have, forced people to believe in him, that wouldn't be a relationship at all. That would be spiritual rape. So yes, we really have free will. In fact, the exercise of our free will is what's meant when it says that we've been made in the image of God. If we've been made in the image of God, that means that like he chooses us, we have to choose him. It also, by the way, means that we're going to live somewhere forever in eternity. So yeah, we have free will. We need to exercise it. God pounds on the door of our hearts and says, let me in, let me in, let me in. I've got new life. I've got great life. But we have to choose. You know, one, when the rich young ruler, we've had a lot of questions about him this week on the program. When the rich young ruler walked away from Jesus, Jesus didn't go chasing after him. Jesus gave him a choice. He made the choice. And Jesus let him live with the choice. And by the way, let him die eternally with the choice if he didn't repent and come to Jesus. So yes, we have a free will. You've got to make the choice. Anybody who goes to hell literally does so over Jesus' dead body. That's how hard he makes it to judge us. And so you do have free will. All you have to do is decide, I'm done with sin and I want Jesus. Ask him to forgive you. And he'll come rushing into your heart. My prayer is that you'll do that, Lord. It's been a great week on the show. Thank you very, very much again. Paul and I will be leaving on Monday. We covet your prayers. Pastor Ken will be doing the program live in studio all next week. You've been listening to the word to stand on for life. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Go to church. Tell somebody Jesus loves them. We'll see you in two weeks. Bye-bye. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapels, the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The word to stand on for life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.